I am excited preaching on the resurrection today. The title of the sermon this morning is uh, Resurrection Life. And uh, we've been in a series here in the book of Colossians. And some of you re- might remember a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago rather, uh, there was a passage in Colossians 2 that I, uh, on purpose, I skipped over. Because I said, I want to save that one for Easter Sunday. I want to keep that one in my back pocket and pull it out on Easter Sunday. So that's what we're going to do this morning. In just a moment, we're going to look at our text today, which is in Colossians chapter 2, in the middle of Colossians chapter 2. And this sermon, it just seems like I say this pretty much every Easter now. This is going to be a different kind of Easter message. I think very rarely do I preach a proper Easter message. It's always got a weird spin to it. And this is one of those messages. Typically, when somebody preaches on Easter, you know, Easter sermons tend to be about what the resurrection means for our future. So Christ died, was buried, and then he conquered all of that and conquered death itself and was raised in this glorified physical body. And uh, and because that happened to Jesus and because we are in Jesus, we're placed in Jesus, there's coming a time in the future when Jesus returns And you and I are going to be transformed just like that. Or the dead in Christ are going to be raised. But whether we're alive or dead, we're going to be raised up. We're going to be given new glorified, perfected bodies, living for all of eternity in the presence of the Lord. And Jesus is going to make everything right. Everything that is not currently the way God would have it to be. Everything that is in conflict with God's agenda is going to be burnt away. Everything that is congruent with God's agenda is going to be perfected. And, uh, and so at that point, there's not going to be any sickness, any death, any sorrow, any tears. There's not going to be reason to have tears. All war and bloodshed and violence is going to be abolished. Everything's going to be made right the way it's supposed to be. Praise God. And to that I say a thousand amens. That's one of the most profound meanings of the resurrection. That's not what I want to talk about today. Today, rather than talking about what Jesus' resurrection means for our future... I want to talk to you about what the resurrection has to do with here and now. Because in the New Testament, so often when the New Testament talks about the resurrection of Christ, the emphasis is on how it affects our life now. And that's what this passage here in Colossians is all about. So let's look at Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13. Watch this, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive. He forgave us all our sins. Let's pause. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that you're present in this room. I'm grateful that you are at work in this house. 
Every person here in this room is here by your design. And there's something that you wish to communicate. I just pray, God, over these next few moments, you would help us to put aside every distraction, internal, external. And as an act of worship, submit ourselves humbly and listen deeply, not just to the voice of a man, but even deeper than that, we want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you speak clearly and powerfully through the anointing on my life and through the frailty of my efforts. I pray that your power would be at work in this word. Let it be planted deep within the soil of our hearts. Take root, sprout, and bear fruit for your kingdom. May your agenda be accomplished this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, years ago, I was traveling, driving to a friend's house. And when I arrived, I parked on the side of the road and I was about to get out of the car. I had an armful of stuff. I had some books some papers and such. And so I started grabbing all of this stuff and, uh, and, and I couldn't find my stupid cell phone. I don't know what it is about me and cell phones and car keys, but I have an allergy to these things and I lose track of them all the time or, or they walk off all the time. So I couldn't find my cell phone. I'm trying to get out of the car. I'm looking for it under the dashboard, in the center console, in the passenger seat, in between the seats, all the usual logical places, and it's nowhere to be found. It's frustrating. Finally, I just had to tell the person I was talking to, listen, I'm going to have to call you back. I can't find my cell phone. Come on, how many of you, how many of you can admit you've had a moment like that in your life? Don't be prideful this morning. It's okay to admit, not one of my finest moments, I will grant you that. But you see, the problem was I was looking for something I already had. I was looking for the phone that I was talking into. It was just so close that I wasn't aware of it. It just didn't hit me. So the mistake I made was that I assumed that I lacked something that I already had. When in reality, the only thing I was lacking was an awareness that I don't lack anything. You see, that's the point right there of this sermon in one sentence. And that's really the central point of Colossians. Sometimes what happens as believers is we don't realize, we don't know, we're not aware of the fact that we actually don't lack anything. When it comes to the things that our soul hungers for, we've, got, we've been given everything we could possibly hunger for peace, joy, freedom, and victory, and love. All of that is ours. All of it we've been given access to. But if we don't access it on a daily basis, if we don't tap into it, if we don't walk in it, we start getting a little empty. We start getting a little hungry. We start feeling like we're lacking something. And the mistake we make is we start searching for something that we've already got. Not realizing that we're not lacking anything but an awareness of that we don't lack anything at all. How many of you are with me so far? So in this passage in Colossians 2, Paul is battling against something called Gnosticism. Everybody say Gnosticism. Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T, and the rest of the letters that spell Gnosticism. We talked about it a couple months ago. Maybe you were here. If you were here, I'll give you a brief summary uh, just to you know, reminds you, if you weren't here, I'll you know, give you just a brief synopsis. Here's what Gnosticism was. It was a very, very popular religious movement in the first two or three centuries following Jesus's time here on earth. Gnosticism was a, 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 an explosively growing movement in the ancient world, and it was extremely dangerous 
to the early Christian movement. It was sucking Christians into it. And here's what the Gnostics believed. They believed, in a nutshell, that there's this huge pantheon of angels. And all of these angels have different names, and they have different ranks. Some of them have more authority than others. And they believed that these angels also had different responsibilities over certain aspects of human life and human society and creation itself. So, for example, there were angels, perhaps, that were in charge of your health. There were angels in charge of agriculture and crops, angels in charge of your finances, your business, angels in charge of your family, angels in charge of fertility and sexuality. Every aspect of life, there's an angel for that. And the Gnostics believed that the more we can have mystical experiences, visions, dreams, and these strange spiritual encounters, the more we can have these type of experiences, the more access we'll have to these angels where we can gain knowledge about which ones are associated with which aspect of our lives and what their names and ranks are. So the more experiences we can have, the more knowledge we can have. That's why they were called the Gnostics. Gnosis means knowledge in the Greek. They're the knowers. We're the ones who have knowledge. We know these angels. We know which ones to go to. So if I'm having a health problem, I know which angel to call upon. If I have that knowledge, then I know which ones to pray to and, and get them to, I'll just kind of twist their arms, massage their egos, and get these angels to help me in whatever I'm facing in my life. So the more knowledge I have, the more I can use the angels in a way that will benefit me, not just in the future, but right here and right now. And as I said, this was very dangerous. Obviously, it had a very seductive appeal. I mean, who wouldn't want to improve their lives? Even if it meant talking to some angel or something, man, if you can utilize them to improve your life, improve your finances, you know, hey. And so it was very popular, and, and a lot of young Christians were getting sucked into Gnosticism. Because the Gnostics would go to the Christians and say, man, you guys are missing the boat. Because all you do is focus on Jesus. There's all these other beings that can help you. Jesus, you know, he's great. You can include him. But why not also involve all of these other spiritual beings as well? Because Jesus, he doesn't have the fullness of God's glory. He's just got part of it. And all these other angels, they got a part of it as well. So take Jesus, keep him, but don't get so locked into Jesus. Put Jesus alongside all of these other angels, and the more, the more of these beings that you know, the more your life's going to go well. But as long as you guys focus totally on Jesus, I mean, they would say it's like you're, you're, you're in a race and you're not even running. You're totally missing out. And so Paul in this passage, he's writing to confront this. And, and, and look again at verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. This is exactly what he's talking about. He says, for in Christ, all, everybody say all, all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So Paul's saying, if you want to know the fullness of God, you don't have to go to this place or that place or talk to this angel or that angel or have this mystical experience or that spiritual experience. If you want to know the fullness of God, all you've got to know is Jesus Christ because everything that makes God, God is found in Jesus. 
This is one of the core foundational truths of Christianity. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and Jesus alone. Why? Because the fullness of God, not part of it, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And Paul says, if you want to be complete, if you want to be fully alive, if you want to be everything you were created to be, look no other place than Jesus Christ because our fullness is found in him. Amen. And one of the things that Paul's trying to lock into our heads through this letter is that when you surrender yourself to Jesus Christ, in a very real sense, you become united with Christ. You become one with Christ. You become entangled in Christ. So that everything that belongs to Christ by nature now belongs to us by grace. His life, his joy, his peace, it's now given to us by grace. Even the very relationship that Christ has with his father, because you and I are united with Christ, that becomes the very same relationship we have with the father. And the very same love that the father has for his son, well, you and I, we're united with Christ. It's the exact same love that we are loved with. What a beautiful, beautiful reality. So when we genuinely surrender our lives to Christ, all of this becomes new. We, we, um, we are united with Christ. We become one with Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we become Christ or we become God or any such nonsense. But, but it's like what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 4. We become participants. We become partakers of the divine nature. What a beautiful mystery. Now, now he brings up baptism. We just had a bunch of folks baptized a moment ago. Paul brings up baptism here. Let's look at it middle of verse 11. He says, uh, your sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Just pause for a second. Circumcision. He, he uses circumcision as an analogy here. Now, I don't want to get detailed about circumcision. But for those of you that know what it is, when a person is circumcised, something gets cut off, right? Something gets put off. Paul's using this analogy. When you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, your sinful nature is put off. It's cut off. Just notice, past tense. It's not that it's going to get cut off. No, your sinful nature has been put off. And then he continues in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him uh, through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he brings up baptism. What is baptism? Water baptism. It is the symbol, the initiation rite of our union with Christ. When a person goes down underwater, however slowly and carefully they are let down by our youth pastor, very gentle baptizer today. It was like, is this in slow motion? What's going on here? When a person goes under the water, it's a symbol of Christ's death and burial. So when you surrender yourself to Jesus, again, you are united with Christ. So watch this. 2,000 years ago, when Christ died and was buried, you died. Your old self, your sinful nature, your, your petty self, your nasty self-centered self, your greedy self, that lustful self, that prideful self, that part of yourself died past tense. When a person comes out of the water, well, this is Christ coming out of the grave. 
If you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you again, you become united with Christ. So 2,000 years ago, when Christ came out of the grave, you ran out of that grave, just like we sang. When Christ came out of the tomb, you came out of the tomb. His resurrection life is now your resurrection life. And now there's a new you. There's a new Courtney. There's a new Slim. There's a new Josh. There's a new Neil. There's a new Raina. There's a new destiny. A new nature, a new self. This is your true self that's come alive, that's been given life. And now it's enjoined with Christ. His peace is now your peace. His joy is now your joy. His love is now your joy, your, your love. His power is now your power. And all of this is true. When? Now. We don't have to wait and sit around for this to happen to us some way, someday down the road. Look at the verbs here in this passage. You have been buried. You are raised. It's a reality now. So Easter is not just about or not even primarily about what's going to happen in the future. Now, that's essential. But in the New Testament, when the authors of the New Testament talk about and teach on and write on the resurrection of Jesus, the emphasis is on how this impacts ourselves right this very moment, right here and right now. Because we have been made new. Now we have been given everything that belongs to Christ. We have this new resurrection life pulsating through our veins. All of this is true right now, regardless of how you feel. Somebody say amen. All right, now I know there are probably people watching this, whether you're in the room or you're listening or watching by stream or podcast or radio or some other means. And maybe you're thinking something like this. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I've submitted my life to Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. But I've got to be honest. A lot of times I don't feel like I have resurrection life pulsating through my veins. That doesn't always feel true. In fact, oftentimes, if you're honest, you might say, I feel empty sometimes. I feel depleted spiritually. I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like I'm hungry. And that old sinful nature, Pastor Ryan, that you're telling me was dead 2,000 years ago, I mean, honestly, sometimes that sinful nature sure does seem like it's still alive. So what's all this talk about being dead and raised and being united with Christ? And listen, I get it. There is not a person listening to this right now or watching this right now who lives this out consistently 24-7, lives out of your resurrected nature. In fact, for, I would say for most people, most of the time we don't. Most of the time we do feel a bit of lack. We do feel some degree of emptiness inside. Most people, that is true. But that doesn't change the fact that what I'm telling you is absolutely true. Whether you feel it or not, whether you experience or not, I'm not saying you ignore your experience. I'm not saying you ignore your feelings. Yes, you got to be honest and deal with that. But never, listen, never invest your experience with the authority to decide what is true. At some point, you've got to make a decision that what God says is true, whether my experience agrees with it or not. So we don't experience this consistently. We all sometimes feel dead. We don't always feel resurrected. And no doubt this was also true for the Colossian Christians. Why? Because they're human beings. And all human beings are in process. Everybody say process. The Christian life, folks, is a process. It's a journey. That's why often in the New Testament it speaks of salvation in the present tense. It's not just the case that we were saved, 
you know, maybe, maybe you can remember a, a specific moment in your life where you submitted your life to Jesus and the whole trajectory changed. And so you could say, I was saved on that particular date. And that's true. But salvation is not just about what happened to you in the past. Salvation is present tense. We are also being saved. And it's also something that's going to happen to us in the future. We're going to be saved. In the New Testament, salvation is past, present, future. We were saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. So it's a journey. Salvation is a journey. And these Colossians, they're on a journey. And there were times on their journey, I'm sure, where they felt, they, they felt a little empty. They felt a little hungry. Maybe even more times than not. And these were the times when these Gnostics would come and tempt them. You see, because these Gnostics, they're selling a show. They're just selling hype. Beware of people that sell hype. Beware, beware of people that are selling a show. And these Gnostics come along and they, they, they encounter these Colossian Christians and say, what's that? Are you not feeling complete every single moment of your life? Are you feeling uh, maybe a little bit empty? You don't feel fully alive every waking moment that you live? Well, maybe it's because you don't have the fullness. You may have part of it, but you don't have the fullness. If you really want to experience fullness, you've got to get in on our secret. You've got to have access to the angels we have access to and start having the kind of mystical experiences that we're having. And so these Colossian Christians, many of them in their weaker moments, they were falling prey to this. They were getting sucked into it. Why? Because everybody craves fullness of life. It's what we were made for. It's what we're hungry for. And they start buying into this lie that they've been sold. And folks, this has been like the strategy of the enemy from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, what is the Garden of Eden? Perfect bliss where everything is exactly the way it should be. And yet in this perfect environment, the serpent is able to come along and convince Eve that she's not okay. And, and the serpent paints a lie about God, and he paints her a lie about herself, and he starts to get Eve feeling like she's missing something. He gets Eve to believe that she's empty, that there's something she's lacking and missing out on. Now, this would have never occurred to Eve. She would have never thought this or felt this way until the serpent comes along. But by selling her this lie, he's able to get Eve to start chasing after something she's already got. He says, you wanna, if you'll eat from this tree, you're going to become like God. Well, Eve was already made in the image of God. She's already got it. But because she falls under this deception, she starts chasing after something she's already got. And she eats from the tree and the rest is downhill. And you see, this has been our enemy's strategy from the, big, from the very beginning. If you're a Christian in this room, you have everything that God could possibly give you, every spiritual blessing from heaven. It's yours in Christ. But what the enemy wants to do is to convince you that you're defective, that you're empty, that you're lacking something, you're missing out on something. And, and, and if you want to be complete and if you want to be full, you've got to look somewhere other than just simply Jesus Christ. And the moment we fall for that, we become like a mouse on a wheel chasing after the cheese of completeness and we never get it and it never satisfies and it just wears people out and it often leaves them disillusioned with God and I've seen it happen with Christians in all kinds of ways there are some believers who even though they're one with Christ and they're united with Christ they're complete in Christ they got everything that their soul could possibly long for in Christ they start chasing after religious 
systems. And they buy a religious lie that if I could just be holy enough, then I'll feel complete. Or if I could just believe all of the right doctrines, then I'll feel complete. Or if I could just go and attend these certain seminars, or if I can just go and be a part of this revival over here, or, or be a part of this church over here, or uh, start having some of the kinds of spiritual experiences and visions and dreams that these folks seem to always be having. And, and if I could just be there when the gold dust falls, I'll feel complete. And then there are other folks who buy into the secular lie. They start chasing after the American dream. Here they are. They're united with Christ. They've got the fullness. They got everything they could possibly crave. But because they're not tapping into it on a daily basis through the disciplines of prayer and absorbing scripture and absorbing the presence of God, they're not tapping into it. They start to get empty. They start to feel hungry. And so they start chasing after the big house, the nice car, the designer clothes, and the success and the reputation and the fame or whatever else, trying to get full, and it never works. Seriously, does it ever work for anybody? It, it always leaves people wanting more. It never fully satisfies. It's the enemy's lie. There are some folks who, who the version of the lie they believe goes something like this, that, man, this is as good as it's going to get right here. And we're just never going to experience abundant life, the fullness that we crave, until Jesus comes back, until heaven arrives. Until heaven gets here, we're always going to be living this kind of life. There's no way we can tap into the kind of abundant life Jesus came to give us. So we might as well just sit on our hands and not do anything and just wait for heaven. And what Paul's trying to do in this passage, folks, and it's so vitally important, he's trying to tell us, don't buy the enemy's lie. Don't buy this lie. Yes, it's true that none of us experience with full consistency, 24-7, the completeness that we have in Christ and the resurrection life that we have in Christ. But that doesn't change the truth of it. And it doesn't change the truth that we are, in fact, complete in Christ. It doesn't change the fact that if you're surrendered to Christ, folks, there is absolutely nothing that you lack. You've been given peace that passes all understanding. You've been given joy unspeakable, full of glory. You've been given perfect love. You've been given total, complete victory and freedom. That's yours right now. But we have to learn how to tap into it on a daily basis. We have to learn how to experience it. But it's not something you've got to sit around and wait for when you die. Right now, wake up and realize you've already got it. Wake up and realize it's already yours for free. That's what Jesus died and raised from the dead to give you. You don't have to go anywhere else. You don't have to acquire something. You don't have to accomplish something. You've already got it if you've surrendered to him. Now it's just a matter of getting our minds to line up with it. Getting our minds, our thermostats, our thoughts to line up with it. Thinking it, envisioning it, reflecting on it. Getting our hearts to line up with it so that our entire lives can be lived in the kingdom of God. So let me close this morning by reviewing three things that Paul says in this passage that we just read here this morning. Three things that are true about us in Christ. Number one, he tells us, watch this, number one, you are already complete in Christ. If you're surrendered to Christ, you are united with Christ, therefore, his fullness is now your fullness End of discussion. All that belongs to Jesus by nature is now given to us by grace. And if there's anything that you lack, it's just simply the confidence that you don't lack anything. 
So I don't care if you sometimes feel empty. I know that we sometimes do. I don't care if sometimes you feel spiritually hungry, if you feel like you're lacking something. I'm not saying ignore your feelings or ignore your experience, but don't invest your experience with the authority to decide what is true. I'm telling you on the authority of Jesus Christ that you've been looking for the cell phone you've already got. You've been trying to acquire something that you already have. And you don't have to wait till heaven to experience the peace and the joy and the love and the freedom that he wants to give you. Now's the time to start living in it. Now's the time to start walking in it, folks. Don't wait until you die to start living. Now's the time to start being fully alive. And it begins where? Right here. Think it. Get it in your mind. Take every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. Fill your mind with the word of God. Memorize it. Tell it to yourself over and over again. Think the truth. Envision the truth. Speak the truth. And then walk in the truth. Talk about how that works in a moment. Second thing is this. He says... We've already seen it. He says, your sinful nature is already dead. Man, if you've been surrendered to Christ, you're united with Christ so that when Christ died, your sinful nature died. And it doesn't matter. It's in the discussion. You know, maybe you don't always feel like your sinful nature is dead. Maybe, you, maybe right now you're, you're in a lot of bondage. I'm not saying you should ignore that. That's very real. You've got to admit it. You've got to be honest with it. Just remember, though, and know this at the very beginning, that's not the truest thing about you. The truest thing about you, I'm telling you on the authority of God's word, is that your old nature is dead, praise God. Past tense. I'm telling you on the authority of God's word that if you're surrendered to Christ, you are righteous. You are holy. Not because of anything you've done, but because Christ shares his righteousness with you. That's what salvation is all about. So I'm telling you on the authority of the word of God, your lust issue is dead. That addiction is dead. That anger problem is dead. That gossip problem is dead. That gluttony is dead. You're stealing, you're lying, you're cheating is dead. Your racism is dead. Now maybe you don't know that because your mind's still a little bit messed up. And all of our minds are a little bit messed up. None of us have minds that totally function the way God designed them to be. And that's why scripture tells us, take every thought captive. We are transformed how? By the renewing of our minds. We've got to start thinking right. Let me give you an example of how this looks, just so you have something to grab onto. Over the last few months, uh, maybe nine or ten months, I've been being tr- trying to be really intentional about being more of a discipler personally. The Lord just started convicting, of me, convicting me of that uh, back in August, probably the beginning of August, that I need to be more of a personal discipler. I need to get my hands dirty more than I already did. And so I started, I, I, you know, I've been working with a lot of people. I've worked with a lot of men. And I'll, take, I'll take guys to lunch. I'll take them to coffee, and I'll just, you know, just get to know them, build a relationship, and then speak into their life when appropriate. And I want to tell you an example of something I've been hearing from several people. I don't have a particular person in mind when I say this. This has been the story that several people have given me is they'll say, Pastor Ryan, uh, man, I, I'm, I'm, I've been baptized, I've, I've given my life to Christ, but my problem right now is I have an anger issue. I'm a hothead. And they say, I've always been a hothead. That's just, I'm just having an explosive temper, man. I just blow up on people. There's just certain kinds of people when I get around them, it just sets me off. Or certain kinds of cir- cir- circumstances and situations, I go crazy. I just lose my temper, I explode. And I know that that's not what God wants for me. I know that. And I don't want that in my life. 
but I, I just don't know how to go about getting that rooted out of my life. And so they want to know what, what they can do. And here's what, I, here's what I share with them. Is that first of all, and this is not just true of having an anger problem, this is true of every character flaw, every sin pattern in your life that is not congruent with God's agenda. It could be anger, it could be greed, it could be lust, it could be some type of addiction or whatever. It could be a million things. But the first thing you got to understand is that the battle is not won in the heat of the moment. The battle is not won when you're in that moment of testing or temptation. If you're waiting until the moment of temptation or the minute or the moment of testing to win the battle, you've already lost. You're going to lose. You win the battle in prayer. Specifically early morning prayer, I believe. I'm a strong proponent of giving God the first block of time of your day. That's when the battle's won. And actually, I believe in praying throughout the day. But that first bit of time in the morning is so important because you're setting your course. And here's what I tell people to do. If it's, if it's an anger, an explosive temper, what you do, the first thing in prayer is you're, is you're absorbing the love of God and you're allowing the love of God to fill you. You remind yourself who you truly are. You remind yourself that this hothead, yeah, maybe my dad was a hothead. Maybe my granddaddy was a hothead. Maybe his dad. Maybe that's just in the blood some way. But that's not who I really am. Not if I'm surrendered to Jesus. That's not who I am. That's my old self. That's the self that was buried, dead and buried 2,000 years ago. That's my false self. Here's who I truly am, and all of this comes right out of Scripture. In Christ, I am calm. I am content. I'm wise. I'm unafraid. Nothing anybody can say or do can threaten my worth or my identity because I'm basking in the love of God. That's where my worth comes from. It comes from the cross. So that's who I am. I'm calm. I'm content. I'm wise. I'm unafraid. And you take statements like that and just sit in those truths and you think it. You reflect on it. You say it. Maybe you say it three or four times. I'm calm. I am calm. I'm content. I'm wise. I'm unafraid by the power of God's Spirit. Think it. Reflect upon it. Speak it. And then envision yourself throughout the day. Begin to imagine your day. Imagine the people you're going to be around, the tasks that you have to complete, the different situations you may find yourself in. Maybe even imagine yourself around one of those people who typically sets you off. Or imagine yourself in one of those circumstances. I know Carrie will tell you, I just have bad road rage. I don't know what it is. Hopefully none of you ever have to encounter that. But man, something about my personality, I'm calm everywhere else. But get me on the road in front of somebody or behind somebody who's not driving the same pace as I am. And it's a problem, you know. And, and so that's my pressure point. So imagine yourself where your pressure points are. Imagine it. Envision yourself living out of your true nature. I'm calm. I'm content. I'm wise. I'm unafraid in Christ. And see yourself living in that calm perspective, that content perspective. Envision it. Think it. Speak it. Envision it. The more you do that every day, you're going to be living it out. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Are you all getting this? Practice it. Try it. Whatever your issue is. Then the last thing is this, the third point. Your old self is dead, which leads to this. You've already been resurrected in Christ. Do the math. If you're surrendered to him, 
You're united with them. Therefore, 2,000 years ago, when Christ rose, you rose. End of discussion. It doesn't matter if you don't always feel resurrected. You may not feel resurrected this morning. Maybe you feel a little depleted. Maybe you feel a little despair. You feel a little bit of discouragement in your life. Maybe you feel lifeless. I'm not saying ignore your feelings, ignore your experiences. They're there. You have to address them. You have to be honest with them. But at the same time, you got to know that if you surrender to Jesus, that's not the truest thing about you. No, the truest thing about you is that you share in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you on the authority of God's word, which is more true than your experience, that you were raised with Christ and all he has has been given to you. So you share in his resurrection joy. You share in his resurrection peace. You share in his resurrection love. You share in his resurrection power. Praise God. Eternal life starts now. Eternal life is not something you're given when you die. No, right now you begin to live the kind of life that's going to go on for eternity. Now, when Jesus comes, he's going to perfect it. But you don't have to wait till you die to start experiencing what Jesus has in store for you. Right now, we can, be, we can begin to learn how to tap into it, how to walk in it, how to experience it. We just got to think the truth, believe the truth, envision it, speak the truth, and then we live the truth. Amen.